Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Children, you guys can get out of here. Um, I'm, I always struggle to remember the ages. Uh, ages 4 to 4th grade or 4 to 12 or it's something like that. Um, but yeah, you guys can head out. Before I forget, I wanted to say today in the sermon, I'll come to a point where I'll ask if anybody has a question. Uh, and so I will be taking a question from online, if anybody has one, and I'll take one from in here. Uh, you'll just say them to me. I'll repeat them through the, uh, the mic so everybody hears them, and then I'll do my best to answer it. The goal here, though, is that the questions are on topic of what we're talking about, not just like a random, because, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know all the answers by any means. I, I'll hope that I have an answer for you. That's, that's my, my goal here. So I have my phone here, and hopefully... If anybody's online and you have a question, please just type it into the chat and I will try to get to at least one of them. Today, we're talking about the church and we're in this series, second week in this series called Simple Church. And the, the goal of the series of Simple Church is to unite us together, all right? The goal is not to divide, the goal is to unite because it's important that we are on the same page about a number of beliefs that are kind of, well, they're foundational to the Christian faith. Um, I, I truly believe that if we can be on the same page in terms of our theology, then we can be on the same page in terms of our mission. Our mission's written on our sign out there. Our goal is to reach out beyond these walls, beyond this place, beyond all of you, to people that don't even know Jesus and help bring them into a relationship with Jesus. That's our goal. But some of you may not adopt that goal because that's not what you think the church is about. And so we need to set our foundational beliefs in such a way that we're not only on the same page about what we believe, but we're on the same mission. Because if we're all running a thousand different directions, we're never gonna get anywhere. I mean, that's, that's the honest truth. So we're gonna try and be on mission together. Um, so we're doing a series on a, a number of things. Last week we talked about Jesus. I told you we'll probably do multiple weeks on Jesus. Uh, this week we're talking about church. I have things like hospitality, discipleship, tithing, communion, baptism, all sorts of stuff on here that are good foundational beliefs for us to be on the same page about. Now, I, uh, I showed you a picture last week of a bullseye. Can we put that on the screen again? These are the three things that I want you to remember, three words. There's important words as we go through this series. Dogma, doctrine, and difference. Dogma are the sort of beliefs that you, can't, you have to believe these in order to call yourself a Christian, right? You, you can't call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, an imitator of Christ if you don't believe that Christ was the Son of God right? That's a dogmatic belief. We have to believe that to be a Christian. Doctrine are beliefs that you don't have to hold to be a Christian, but they're connected to the church you're a part of. So there are doctrinal beliefs that we might talk about. Um, today would be a bit more doctrinal than dogmatic as we talk about the church. Um, and the last one is differences. <laughs> there are as many opinions in this room as there are people, all right? And sometimes our opinions get locked in. We believe those things are actually dogmas. We believe those things are doctrine. 
And the truth of the matter is, sometimes they're not. And so, unfortunately, what the church has often become known for, what Christians have been known for, is judging one another about, like, missing the forest for the trees. We pick out these silly little things that are, really belong in the category of difference, and we treat them like dogmas. We judge one another for them. New people come in. They feel like they don't fit. They can't find a place here because they feel judged, and that's not what we want. So there are some beliefs that we're going to talk about that are going to go in the category of differences, all right? And, and that might be hard for you because you've really held on to those. And the best pastoral advice I can give you is chill out about those, okay? Um, how's that for candid? Um, lastly, I said this last week, I'll say it again, I'm gonna say it every week because you never know when we're gonna get somebody new online or in person. Uh, what you might find, and it's not my hope that this happens, but you might find in this series that Kanoi is not a good fit for you. We might talk about something that's dogmatic, doctrinal, or a difference, and you think our categories are wrong, and you, 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 this is not a good fit. Here's my request. First, at least talk to me. Not because I'm gonna try and argue you into my way of thinking, I just wanna make sure that I didn't say something that you misinterpreted, and then um, I need to re-explain. Because the honest truth is, it's more on me than it is you, okay? And if you misunderstood me, somebody else probably did too, I need to make a correction. And I need to humbly do that. So I want that to be the first step. Second step is, if you still feel like it's not a good fit for you, I wanna help you find a good fit for you. Like, I have nothing against anybody that comes, checks us out, and says, not my kind of thing. I just wanna help them find a church home because I believe that we should all have a church home. If we believe in Jesus, I believe a church community is an essential part of believing in Jesus. Um, so I wanna help you find one. And so that's my offer to you. I mean that as authentically and genuinely as I possibly can. Please take me up on that if that's where you're at. All right, let's talk about church. Here's some questions that we often will hear. What church do you go to? Are you going to church today? Where, where is your church? Right? Those are some of the, uh, the normal questions that we get asked. Those are some of the normal places that the word church comes up in conversation for us. You know, the first time that church appears in the New Testament is in the book of Matthew. And you can look this up if you want. Um, I'll have it on the screen, but Matthew 16, 18. And it's actually Jesus who says these words. He says to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's the first time the word church shows up in scripture. And the word church is the word ecclesia. Can you guys say ecclesia? Go for it, say it, ecclesia. All right, there you go. That's your Greek lesson for the day. Um, Here's what ecclesia is. Ecclesia is a gathering of citizens often convened at the city gates for the purpose of deliberating. Okay? Ecclesia is a gathering of people often at the city gates and the purpose is to deliberate over something. The word exists long before Jesus is on the earth. It exists long before Jesus uses it there in Matthew. Um, around 330 BC, so 300 years before Christ was born, um, there was a constitution drawn up for the city of Athens. And when they drew the constitution up, they mandated that ecclesia be a part of the way the city operated. The way the city operated, they had a group of people that came together and they made all sorts of decisions together and they called them the ecclesia. 
okay? What they did is they elected generals, <laughs> they declared war, they made peace treaties, they developed political positions, they raised funds, all of the things that you think of needing to happen in a city was done by the ecclesia. They also judged private citizens. So you and I, if we got in trouble, we would go before a court of law, there'd be a judge. And this is a very democratic way. You have the ecclesia judge the citizen. Now here's the interesting thing. If you were downstairs this morning, we talked a bit about quorum, which is the necessary number of members that need to be a part of a gathering in order to vote on something. Uh, in Athens, if a citizen was to be banished, the quorum needed to do that was 6,000. 6,000. I mean, think about that in a day before texting and megaphones and microphones. You know, 6,000 people needed to be present to affirm the decision to banish someone. So I find that interesting. Um, the word ekklesia to the Greeks who developed this uh, constitution, it literally meant the called out ones. The called out ones. They're called out to come together, to judge, to vote, and uh, decide on political matters. Now, we see this ecclesia show up actually in Acts chapter 19. There's a story there where, where Paul is on a missionary journey, and Paul's goal is to go into some of these Greek cities um, some of these non-Jewish cities where they worship uh, false gods and false idols. And his goal is to get them to stop worshiping these false gods and false idols. And he is actually pretty darn successful. So successful that a whole bunch of craftsmen get together. And they're really, really upset because these are the guys who are responsible for making the graven images, the idols. You know, they're the silversmith, the goldsmith, the, the woodcrafters who make these things and sell them to the people. So if you worship Artemis and you want to do that at your house or you want your house to be blessed, you might get a statue of Artemis and put it at your house, right? Um, these guys are losing business, which means they're losing money. And there's one guy among them, his name is Demetrius, and he's kind of the ringleader. So Acts 19 records that Demetrius gathers an assembly of all of these people, and his hope is that they would judge Paul, cast him out of the city, that that way they would not keep losing business to Paul's guidance toward Jesus. So he gathers this massive group of people. The massive group of people start chanting things like, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Acts records that many of the people who showed up for this assembly, who showed up for this ecclesia, had no idea why they were there. They, they just showed up and the crowd was doing something so they joined in. It ended up being this mass confusion and chaotic thing. The city clerk comes out and says, this is illegal, this is ridiculous. Demetrius, if you wanna file real charges, you can gather a real legal assembly. Other than that, everybody disperse, this is over, okay? And he kinda ends the whole issue. It just becomes interesting to me that some of the churches that I've visited feel more like that assembly gathered than something that is honoring and glorifying to God. Something where you're just joining in and doing something that you don't really understand. And, and I think it's possible that even sometimes here that happens, which is why we're doing a series like this where we go back to the foundation and say, this is what we believe, this is what it means. So that we don't have people showing up and going, I'm all in, and having no idea what they're all in for. Now, apart from the Greeks, so we just talked about Athens and Ephesus, and we talked about their constitution and the use of the word ecclesia there. It's translated assembly in some places, church in some places. 
the Jewish people actually have their own connection with the word ecclesia as well. Um, so about 200 years before Christ comes to earth, the Jews begin taking their Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, and they begin translating those into Greek. All right? That's something called the Septuagint. So if you went to Bible college or something and you had like an intro to Bible class and you heard the word Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And, uh, and they translated some of the words in the Old Testament to the word ecclesia that we translate as church now. Um, when they did this, we find the word ecclesia in a few places where you find the Hebrew word kahal. So in Deuteronomy 4.10, it says, gather the people to me and let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days which they live upon the earth, and they shall teach their sons. The word gather, the, the, the Jews take and translate to ecclesia. So the gathering, a place where you're learning about God, a place where you're learning about God to pass on to your children, is one of the ways that they're looking at ecclesia. Um, as we look at the rest of the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find a number of places where a form of the word ecclesia is used to describe what's happening there. And in fact, um, the word preacher, you find the word preacher in Ecclesiastes, that's a form of the word ecclesia, uh, ecclesia because it means one who speaks to the assembly, one who speaks to the gathered ones, the called out ones. Um, all of that is to say, this isn't a word that Jesus made up. When Jesus speaks it in Matthew for the first time, it's recorded in the New Testament, it's not a new word. He wasn't just like, um, you know, it's like the Genesis where he's like, Adam, what do you want to name this? And he's like, dog, cat. He wasn't just coming up with something. There was already something that people understood and knew what it was called ecclesia that Jesus says, all right, that thing, I'm going to take that and we're going to rework that and give it to you. Um, it also kind of helps us understand a bit why Rome had such a problem with Jesus. If you think about it, Rome's understanding, the Greeks' understanding of what ecclesia is, is it a socio-political charged gathering of people meant to vote on things and discuss things and make decisions. And at the time that Jesus is born, Caesar is not only just thought of as God, but as the son of God. And so imagine that there's somebody that comes on the scene, claims to be the son of God, and says, we're gonna create an ecclesia where we're gonna gather and we're gonna talk and discuss. And of course, Rome is gonna see that as a huge threat. Rome's gonna see that as a threat that somebody is saying they're the son of God and it's not Caesar. They're gonna see some sort of political gathering as a threat to their hold on the region. And so of course, Caesar has to put a stop to these things. Caesar felt threatened by the church. And here's, here's one of the things I think today. I don't think anybody feels threatened by the church today. Um, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Here's what I do think. I think a lot of politicians see the church as a resource to be leveraged in order to gain power. And that's a big part of why I really don't like politics. Because every four years, I see somebody come on the scene who panders to Christians in order to get their vote because the Christian vote is such a large part of the total voters. And for the most part, politicians want the power that comes with the vote, but they don't take very seriously any of the promises that they make or 
the beliefs that they buddy up to with us for. So to some, very much not threatened by ecclesia, but they see ecclesia as a way to gain power. Uh, William Barclay, and I have a slide of him. He was a um, Scottish minister, professor, radio host, television guy. Uh, He died in 1978. I have some of his commentaries in my office, and I've often appreciated the way that he looks at scripture as he kind of works through them. And he has this book called um, New Testament Words. Sounds like a really thrilling book, right? Uh, And he has this passage where he's talking about how to properly translate the word ecclesia and kahal from Hebrew. And one of the things he wants to say, he very specifically says, is it can't be translated. Neither of these words can be translated as congregation. And here's what he says. In the Hebrew sense, uh, kahal he's talking about, it means God's people called together by God in order to listen to or act for God. In a certain sense, the word congregation loses a certain amount of the essential meaning because a congregation is a company of people who have come together. A kahal or an ecclesia is a body of people who have been called together. The two original words, Hebrew and Greek, put all of the emphasis on the action of God. So did you catch that? An expert in this stuff says that you can't translate ecclesia or kahal as congregation because all that means is a gathering of people. All that means is people gathered at the city gates to vote on things and judge citizens and make decisions about politics. You can't call it congregation because all that means is people gathered into one space. Instead, you have to translate those words as something like church because it means people not gathered together but called together. That is an essential foundational distinction that we have to make. I set it downstairs in our meeting this morning, but this is not a social club. This isn't club med. That when we invite people to be a part of this thing, absolutely there's fellowship. Absolutely there's, there's fun things that we do, but this isn't a social club. We're here for a reason. We are called together. We're not just a congregation. We're a church, and it's important that we, we all understand that. Now, the other piece that's really important too is that Jesus, when he talks about church, like when he, in Matthew 16, or Matthew 18, 16, when he says to Peter, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church, Jesus is Jewish. Why didn't he use the word synagogue? Right? You're the synagogue upon which I'll build, or you're the rock upon which I'll build my synagogue. Why didn't he say that? Why did he choose this other term? And I think it's important for us to understand that synagogue was used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's people all over the place. This isn't isn't new. Jesus is Jewish. Synagogue makes sense, except that synagogue was understood to be a place. Synagogue was understood to be a building. And it was a place and a building separate from the temple in Judaism. In Judaism, you went to the temple, you made your sacrifice. The temple is the place where God comes down and God's presence is. If you want to meet God, you go to the temple. Synagogue is where you met every week and you you learned, you had some scripture reading. It's where you saw your rabbi. Synagogue was a place separate from the temple. 
Do you remember what we said last week about Jesus? Jesus is the temple in the flesh. Why does Jesus not use the word synagogue? Because church isn't a place, and church isn't a place separate from the temple. That is something that we have to, have, we have to be on the same page about. That is not dogmatic. That is doctrinal. That is part of who we are as the brethren in Christ. There's a reason that our buildings, I mean, they're getting less simplistic. But if you look at our historical brethren in Christ buildings, you look at this room, all things considered, it's pretty simple. That was always purposeful because the church is a people, a people gathered, a people called by God to gather, and the building was a place that housed them. Of course, if we say all of that, it begs a question. If church is a people called together, what are we called together for? You are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's two promises there. The first one is Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Which, which means you're not alone. I, what I said before we prayed today, you're not alone. This, this church thing that we're doing, this, this church thing that we are, this church thing that we hope grows, you're not alone in that. It's not up to you. It doesn't rise and fall all dependent upon you. You are a partner with Jesus Christ himself. You are a co-laborer with Jesus Christ himself who says, I will build my church. We're not alone in this thing, which is why we don't just make plans and do a nice five-step plan over the next five years in order to do X, Y, and Z to our church. We prayerfully consider the direction that God is calling us to go, and we make decisions to get there, and we do it with God, not apart from God. We do it with God's strength, not with our strength. We do it with his vision, not our vision, and that is an essential thing to know. He says, I will build my church. He doesn't say, Peter, go, and you do your thing. Peter, you're the rock upon which I'll build my church. I will build my church. And then the second part, he says, is the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I, I don't even know. Like, you read that on the face of it, and you go, what does that mean? The gates of Hades will not overcome it? Because, man, Nick, we seem to live in a world where it feels like the gates of Hades is overcoming everything sometimes. You know, the Jews thought of, of Hades as a place for disembodied spirits. It was a... It was the home of the wicked. That's what Hades was. It, it, it's, it's like Jesus is saying to us that um, if you can imagine the worst place, if you can imagine the, the worst time, the worst behavior, the worst collection of evil, all of that, that'll never overcome my people called to gather. It will not overcome what I am building with my people that I've called to gather. It will not overcome my church. And that is an important promise that we must put in our pocket for the really hard days when we are like Habakkuk going, Lord, why do you make me look at this injustice? Why do you make me look at this hardship? On the days that we feel that, we need to pull that out of our pocket and go, you know what? Jesus promised the gates of Hades will not overcome this, okay?
Now, again, what are we called to gather for? Why are we a people called to gather? What are we called to? So a, a couple things. I just I kind of took a peek of scripture here. You know, I, I like scripture a lot. I think it's important that scripture is a big part of our services and a big part of our teaching time because it's what grounds us. Um, otherwise, I could just be up here giving you a whole bunch of opinions, and that's not what I'm here to do. Um, my opinions just aren't that good. In Colossians... Paul writes to the city of Colossae, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitudes in your heart, with gratitude in your heart, okay? So that sort of almost sounds like a church service that we're familiar with. We have some teaching, we have some singing, we're lifting each other up and encouraging each other, okay? Uh, In Ephesians, Paul says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens, okay? So we need to make the person who is a stranger to us welcome. We need to invite them in because the goal of being together in the body of Christ is that no one is foreign, that no one is a stranger, but instead, we're actually family. We're fellow citizens, okay? In his letters to Timothy, who's a young pastor, Paul writes, um, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay, so scripture is a, a big part of what we do. Got it. All right. In James, we did a study on James last year. James writes, hey, if anyone is among you that is sick, call the elders. Call the deacons to come and pray over them and anoint them with oil for, for healing. Okay, so there's a hierarchy to our gathering. There's a There's a call for those who are sick to reach out and those who are not sick to do the caring for those who are sick, great. To the city of Corinth, Paul writes, just as a body, though there, just as a body, though one has many parts, all of the many parts form one body. So it is with Christ, okay? So there's a lot of individuals who come in They have gifts, they have differences of who they are, but those individuals come together and they make up one body. Helpful to know. To the Romans, Paul says, he warns them actually, he says a warning. I urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. Okay, so in some ways we need to guard ourselves against the people and the things that would divide us as a community. Got it. So, I mean, if we scour the New Testament and we look at the writing to a church in Corinth, we look at the writing to a church in Ephesus, we look at the writing to a church in Colossae, we get these little pieces. Uh, if we look at John's writing and James's writing and Peter's writing and Paul's writing, we get these little pieces of what it means to be God's people called out to gather together to be God's ecclesia. But maybe it's more helpful if we swim upstream and we consider, we try to capture the information that these apostles were, were working from. When I was in seminary, a professor told me that if I really wanted to get on the level of the people whose books I was reading and feeling inspired by, he said, stop reading their books and read the books that they read. So when you read it, look at the footnotes. They're gonna quote somebody's book Put their book down and go read that book. Be inspired by the things. Be influenced by the people who influence the people you respect. So, who influenced the apostles? Jesus. I'm so glad you know that. 
Here's what I suggest to you. It's called Simple Church. I'm gonna make this super simple. I believe that the influence of Jesus on the apostles as they created and cultivated a community of people to follow Jesus can be summed up in two verses from the book of John. John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says it's a new commandment, but it's not a new commandment, guys. That's a command that these Jewish men and women heard all growing up, love one another. But he says it, and the word new can be translated to be the word fresh. So we get the picture of when you want to cook a really nice dish for dinner, you go to the supermarket, you go to the, the, the open air market, and you pick up the freshest vegetables that you can to add to your dish. He's saying every day make this command that fresh. Every day you go to the market and you get this command to make it that fresh. Love one another like I have loved you every single day. And if you do that, then the world who looks at you will know that you follow me. Sometimes one of the questions that I get from people are like, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Right here. That's, that's an easy question. If I look at your life, are you loving the people around you like Jesus loved you? Because if you are, easy for me to know, you follow Jesus. If you're not, there's something else you're following. Now that's still, that's a really big statement. I boil it down to two verses to make it simple, but it still feels big. It's like so heavy, like, Nick, well, what does it mean to love other people? I'm glad you asked. Again, I think it's best to let scripture speak for itself. There's a Greek word that uh, is the word alelon, and it's one word in Greek, but it's translated to two words in English. The two words it's translated to in English are the, word, are the words one another. One another. Here's why one another is important. Because ecclesia is a group of people that are called together. When we are together, we should pay attention to anything the Bible says that includes the words one another. And that is where, hopefully, you picked up a handout on your way in. It looks like this, because this is so important that you need to take it with you. And I recognize to fit it on one thing, the writing is small. You might have to get your magnifying glass out. I do apologize for that, but these are worthwhile to know. So here we go. There are 47 alelon, one another commands. And I'm going to tell you them today. And then I'm gonna take questions, okay? One question from here, one question from online. So if you're listening online, get your question ready. One third of the one another verses are all about unity of the church. Here these are. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning communion. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. 
Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with one another and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Now the next third is all about loving one another. Here's the first one. Love one another. That's mentioned 12 times. So if I'm going to give this list the credence that it needs, I should stay up here and go, love one another. 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 Here's the next one. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. We're not doing that here, okay? <laughs> Be devoted to one another in love, right? A third of these are all about love. There's a huge pattern here. We can't miss it. If you remember nothing else, just remember the 12. Love one another. About 15% of these stress an attitude of humility among believers. Here you go. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be haughty, be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. And then there's some more that don't really fit into one of those three categories. Do not judge one another. And don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Greet one another with a kiss. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another on toward love and good deeds. Pray for one another and be hospitable towards one another. Friends, you have to know these. And I'm not saying you have to remember all these. You don't have to memorize this list if you want to. By all means, this is the most important scripture you could possibly remember in my mind. But I'm telling you, if you have ever asked the question, what is the church supposed to be? Who are we? If you've ever sat back and looked at the church you were a part of and went, why does this seem so different than what I read right here? Why are people gathering to treat one another in this terrible way rather than in the way that I see right here? then this is the list we have to refer to because this is what it means to be the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is the people of God gathered in one place, called by God to gather in that place for a mission. And when those people are called together, this is the way that we have to live. We have to. Because the world looks at the church and judges the church. And you might say, why? And I'm going to tell you, it's right in front of you. You might say, it's not fair. And I'm going to tell you, it's totally fair. Because we claim to follow something that we don't spend a whole lot of time following. We can do better. That's why I made that for you. I mean, that, use your magnifying glass. It is that important. Take it with you. Use it as a bookmark. Hang it on your fridge. Please look at it. We've talked about the circle of love before, and perhaps you missed that. We did that last year. That was a, a tool for us. But this is the circle of love. These are all the tools you're given. 
with one another. Now, I'm gonna pause there for a second. Question. Anybody have a question? I'm not seeing any online right now, but I'm, I'm looking. Anybody in here have a question? Yeah. Ed's question is, is there ever, was there a period in my life, like a, like a moment, that I felt called to be in leadership of the church, or was it over a long period of time? I like that. That's all opinion. That's great. Um, I, it wasn't a moment. I'll be honest, my first pastoral position, I didn't even want it. I... Um, Somebody else wanted it for me. Church called me up and asked me to interview, and I said no. And they called me up again, and I said no. Because in my mind, I never, ever wanted to work in a church because my experience with church had been so negative. I felt like I could make more of a difference outside of the church. I knew that I wanted to live a life of ministry, of following God, and of leading other peoples to know who God is. But I thought the church is the last place I want to do it. The church is going to kill me. That's what I honestly thought. So I said no. And uh, as I prayerfully considered their third request to apply for the job, I felt like God led me to go, just go through the process and see where it goes. And so that was my, my total commitment. That's, and then I ended up in a church. And I, I mean, I fell in love with church all over again. And that didn't mean that I had rose-colored glasses and didn't see all the problems that I had experienced in my earlier years. I just loved the church despite the problems, you know? Um, that's every relationship, isn't it? Everybody that we love, we love despite the problems that they come with. And that's where I found myself. I fell in love with the church despite the problems that, that I had seen, the problems that I had had with it. So it was over a period of time. And the longer I've done it, the more I've loved it. Um, and honestly, even in the midst of some hard years where we lost some children, in the midst of hard years through a pandemic, um, I have never lost my hope in the church. Um, it's only ever gotten stronger. Oh, thanks. Um, got one question here online. With social media so prevalent, a lot of the one another's can be very difficult to follow. In those instances, what would be your best guidance and advice in those situations? All right, more opinion, great. Um, yeah, and I think, I think social media is a bit of a nightmare, I'll be honest with you. So if you're somebody who's super into social media and, and really kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, even addicted to it, um, I think that's something that you're going to have to grapple with in a big way. Um, social media used to be a safer place than it is now. And when I say safer, I mean that in a whole lot of ways. One, social media, never a place to get into an argument. It's not going to work for you. It just, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I, I, and I personally, I shake my head. I kind of sigh like, ah. if I see people arguing with one another on Facebook, I'm just like, boy, where's this going to go? It's not going to go anywhere, to be honest with you. And, and, and the other thing is that when you do that on Facebook or whatever social media 
it is, you often have no idea beyond the written word what somebody means. It's so easy to have a miscommunication. It's so easy to misunderstand some, the way somebody meant when they used a certain word. So the one another's, yeah, they're hard, but I'll be honest, I think it's a, it's a hell of our own making on, on Facebook and social media, okay? Um, maybe what a lot of us need to do is just take a step back from social media. I'm on social media. I'm on most of the social medias. It's helpful for me for my job, so by no means am I saying you shouldn't be on social media. I think that's a decision that you have to make. If it's such a big problem for you, then maybe you should not be on social media. It's like somebody who deals with alcoholism not going to a bar, right? If that's you with social media, then yeah, maybe you should get off. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying just consider how much you're letting it run your life. If it's running your life to the extent where you're going, I, I can't love one another online, I, you gotta, there's a problem there. A problem that you can fix. That sort of hell is locked from the inside, okay? So unlock the door, take a step back, and uh, stop engaging in that sort of negative way in an online world. If you can, transition from online to in-person or on the phone. At least on the phone, they can hear the tones in your voice and what you mean. You can kind of work through something together. Um, and I have had my own share of things happen online. So by no means am I saying this in like, I've never had any experience with this. I've had experience while being at this church where I've said something that I thought was innocuous, uh, which, for, yeah, uh, which is a word that meant like uh, not harmful. And um, somebody took it and laid into me real good. Um, and that just wasn't the way I meant it. So, um, yeah, I hope that helps a bit. I just would say take a step back. All right, I want to wrap up. And it's really easy, really simple, really short. If we can be a community that lives this, these one another's out, then we can be the sort of ecclesia that Jesus talks about building. And we can be the sort of ecclesia that not even the gates of Hades can overcome. But if we choose to walk away from that list, if we choose to say that's too hard, I'm not gonna try, and we've already lost the battle, okay? The church is this fantastic organism. It is the bride of Christ. You and I, gathered together are the bride of Christ. What a fantastic honor we have to walk with Jesus in this place for the people that he loves. It's not just the people inside here that he loves. He came for the whole wide world. That is our mission. And I did tell you, I would always tell you whether it was doctrinal, dogmatic, or whatnot, this today would be more doctrinal. This is how the brethren of Christ sees church. Um, this is how the Anabaptists see church. Um, there are other denominations out there that would not see church this way. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we look at them as less than. It doesn't mean that we judge them as not being followers of God. We're saying as we read scripture to the best of our ability, as we engage with the Holy Spirit to the best of our ability, seeking his vision and direction from us, this is the best way we can describe and talk about and be the church. Love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for today and thank you for the, um, 
the time we've had to talk about who you are and who you are to your, to your bride. God, I pray that we would stop seeing the church as a building, that we would stop seeing it as a budget or we would stop seeing it as a uh, offering plate or we stop seeing it as a whole bunch of chairs in rows or stained glass windows or whatever it is when we hear the word church and we picture those things. God, I pray that you would give us a whole new picture of what it means to be the church and that is the person sitting next to us. That is the people sitting in front of us and behind us. That is when we sing this next song, the other voices that are raised up to the heavens praising and glorifying your name for that is the church and that is what we need to know at the depth of our being. God, thank you for the church. Thank you for God's people gathered together and called to mission together. I pray, Lord, that we would continue in mission for you. In your name, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website. KanoiChurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.